this is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, our guest is Robin D'Angelo, author of the book, Nice Racism, How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm. She looks at how well-intentioned white people can inadvertently cause racial harm through what she calls a, quote, culture of niceness. She's interviewed by Eddie Glaude, author and Princeton University professor of African-American studies. I'm so delighted to have this opportunity to sit down and talk with you, Robin D'Angelo. If I may call you Robin, it's so exciting. Oh, thank you so So, much. It's an honor. Yeah, yeah. so I want to begin with, uh, it seems like a basic question, but it's it's a moment in the book uh, where you were actually dealing with um, the, the kind of tension between class and race mm-hmm. and you told your story mm-hmm. and I thought it's I thought it really important to kind of begin with your journey to this work mm-hmm. tell a little bit about talk a little bit about you and the way in which your upbringing shapes how you approach anti-racist education sure um I'll talk about the aspects of my of my life and upbringing that I think is so relevant to the work that I do today um, at two pieces, and one I'm not sure I write about in the book, and that uh, is that my mother died when I was 11 years old. She died of leukemia. Uh, this was the late um, uh, 50s, early 60s. At that time, you didn't talk about those things. It, it probably seems shocking to people today, but cancer was a shameful thing. And we were told not to speak about it. And when she died, we were told not to, <laughs> not to talk about it. Uh, afterwards either. And so it was a traumatic experience for me, but I don't think it had to be that traumatic if we had been able to talk about it. I was 11 years old. Um, and so from a, from an early age, I couldn't have articulated it this way at that time, but I did understand the relationship between silence and suffering. There was this huge elephant in the room, and by, good, by God, I couldn't talk about that then, but I'm going to talk about this elephant now. I also grew up in poverty because my mother was a single mother. She was struggling with this cancer. She couldn't keep a job. Uh, She couldn't keep us housed. We were often left with strangers for long periods of time. Um, She couldn't keep us fed or bathed. Um, I'm quite sure that I wasn't clean as a child. Um, And I had a lot of shame. Uh, and uh, I'll never forget that moment that all of that crystallized for me when she took uh, my sisters and I to visit another friend, some some friend. And as often happens, when the adults get together, the children begin to play and we were playing. And then it came time to leave. And I was the last one out the door. And I overheard uh, one of the little girls ask her mother, what's wrong with them? That is the literal question she asked. What's wrong with them. And I stopped, you know, riveted. I I wanted to hear the answer. And her mother went like this, they're poor. And I won't ever forget that moment. Uh, I even feel chills now because it was when I realized, okay, there's something about us that's shameful and everyone can see it, but nobody should speak of it. And, and I share that because um, when I realized much later in life, 
that I participated in somebody else's oppression, that was unbearable to me. I cannot know uh, the Black experience, uh, but I can tap into the shame of poverty uh, and, and discrimination based on being poor and not want to contribute in, in, in a form of that for anybody else. I also always knew I was white. And I just have to look at, at white people who, who are poor or working class and say they don't have privilege. And I have to say, come on. <laughs> uh, I always knew I was white. I always knew it was better to be white. Uh, and in fact, we used black people to ameliorate some of our class shame. I can remember being hungry, being out in public in a park and seeing food left out and reaching for that food and being admonished not to touch it because you don't know who touched it. Could have been the language of the time was colored person. Don't sit there. You don't know who sat there could have been a colored person. And the, you know, the message was clear. Had a colored person touched that, it would be dirty. Now, I was actually dirty. <laughs> uh, but in those moments, I wasn't poor anymore. I wasn't shameful anymore. It was a form of projecting our dirt and shame onto Black people. And it was the way that we aligned ourselves, or I would say realigned ourselves with the dominant white culture that our poverty separated us from. I don't have less racism <laughs> because I grew up poor. I just learned my place in the racial hierarchy from a different class position than I would have learned it had I been middle class. I would have learned it there too. Just different lessons would have come home to me. So, I mean, this is, I, I thought, thought it important to begin there to kind of give a sense of your own journey, the way in which you use your biography mm. um, as a way to disrupt a kind of false, in some ways, false dichotomy between class and race, yeah. which is the yeah. most important, which is epiphenomenal in right. life. Uh, but but I, I think it's important that we start with your story, right? Mm. That, that, there, that, that there's a journey to this, this work. Now, talk a little bit about, before we get to the actual book, Nice Race, yeah. talk a little bit about how white fragility changed your life. I mean, this book has been this extraordinary, the old, the, first, the former book was this extraordinary hit, New York Times bestseller, yep. number one. How has it transformed you? Because a lot of the stories uh, in the new book come out of your travels around the country doing this extraordinary work around anti-racism yeah. education. You know, like, like a lot of white people, particularly white people who experience a form of oppression in their life, other, of course, we don't experience uh, racial oppression, but we experience other forms. And uh, for a lot of us, uh, we've thought long and deep about how unjust life is for us. Uh, but, but rarely, I was in my 30s before I how I ever considered how I benefited. Um, and, and that in a large part, my whiteness allowed me to navigate my poverty. Um, I didn't go to college until I was in my 30s. Um, but of course, once I got there, um, I fit in. I was reflected everywhere by all my teachers, by the curriculum. Um, and I graduated not knowing what I could do and got this position as what we called in the 90s a diversity trainer. And uh, I've been doing this kind of work now for about 25 years. I went on to get my PhD. I've been writing and publishing uh, on racism and white racial identity for 
decades, uh, but mostly in academia. And I know you're an academic and you know that, you know, does anybody read the <laughs> peer reviewed articles we write? Um, yeah. You know, sometimes uh, maybe grad students. Um, and I had written the article, White Fragility, um, about the frustration um, of trying to talk to white people about racism. So right. um, being a diversity trainer, going day in and day out, uh, going against my socialization, which, uh, you know, most white people are taught not to talk about racism. And every day I walked into rooms filled with white people and say, we're going to talk about racism. Most often standing side by side with a black co-facilitator who was the only person of color in most of those rooms and just being stunned at the hostility to the conversation, at the meanness. I mean, we can be really mean <laughs> on this topic and driving home with that co-facilitator and w bearing witness is part of being white is never having to bear witness to the pain of racism on black people and rarely being held accountable for the pain that you cause black people. Um, and so that experience plus academia um, kind of brought me to be writing and um, somebody somewhere quoted from White Fragility, the article, and it exploded. I apparently captured in language a dynamic that, that's been familiar, um, certainly to Black people, but also, uh, once I named it, familiar to white people. And it's harder to deny a shared experience. So um, I was getting emails from around the world uh, about about that article, and I knew um, that it would be useful to develop it more for, uh, further and to make it accessible because it's an academic speak. You know, we know how to do that. It's not my favorite way to write, but you know, you kind of have to do it <laughs> in academia. I wanted to make it accessible uh, in 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 more plain language, uh, and so I went to a non-academic publisher, a, a nonprofit social justice publisher, Beaker, Beacon Press. I knew there would be an audience for the book based on the reaction to the article, but who could dream? It's still on the, it's still on the list. It's been three years. Who could dream of that? Um, I don't, I, I wasn't prepared for the depth of backlash from all sides of the spectrum. I expected it from the right. You know, you, 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 you expect that that doesn't really get, get to you in the same way. Um, but I didn't expect it to that degree from the left. And so that's been a process. So that's interesting that you didn't expect it from the left. And there's a sense in which uh, the left is not, I wouldn't want to say it too, I don't, I don't want to generalize too much, but they, they're caught within the crosshairs of this book. Mm -hmm. There's a sense in which I, I remember this moment with James Baldwin when he was uh, 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 kind of uh, testifying before Congress with Betty Shabazz. And he, he, he said something to this effect that he was skeptical of the white liberal. Mm -hmm. He's skeptical of those who wanted to do something for him as opposed to with him. Yeah. And he had seen how white liberals had responded uh, to the Cold War, to the, Macau to the McCarthy era, how they betrayed. So, so there is this deep suspicion in Baldwin's corpus. And you cite Baldwin as well as mm -hmm. uh, Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail at the very beginning of the book. Now, so say a little bit about 
nice racism. What is this? And who 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 are these people who are the nice racists that you're talking to? Well, it's um, me. <laughs> um, we have to start with the basic foundation of systemic racism. So let's just proceed from that premise that that racism occurs in explicit acts, but it's actually um, a structure that's infused across society. And it is the norm. It's not an aberration. It's reproduced 24-7, 365. It's a highly adaptive system. Look where we are with voters' rights. Uh, We thought in 1965 we'd settled that. And we're in a very serious place right now. So, so it adapts to challenges and it keeps on keeping on. Um, and so if it is a system, we are all shaped by it. We are all shaped by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for, for those of us who are white, we have to change our question from if I've been shaped by this system to how have I been shaped by it? You cannot be exempt from the cultural water that you swim in. And so nice racism is meant to capture uh, the well-intended white progressive, uh, the moderate who uh, is more concerned with a lack of conflict, who's more concerned with comfort and saving face than racial injustice. You know, there's so much uh, hand-wringing about white people feeling guilty. For me, that's a great example. You know, oh my goodness, white people may feel something unpleasant <laughs> in in looking at racism, and we're going to compare that to what we what we watched in front of our own eyes this summer with George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and so forth. Um, so the reason I say that the white, in King's term, it was moderate. I think in um, Baldwin's, it was liberal. Like today we say progressive. I actually think we do the most daily harm. And, and I don't want to speak for you. You can correct me or, or if I, if I misspeak, um, but Odds are on a daily basis, you're not interacting with white nationalists. And if you are interacting with white nationalists, you're aware that that's who you're interacting with. And (laughs) in some ways, you know how to uh, protect yourself. On a daily basis, especially especially in academia, you are most likely interacting with colleagues just like me. And we are the ones that send you home often exhausted. (laughs) Um, Those thousand daily cuts, that maddening, insidious, huh, I can't get my fingers on this. But yet again, we've reproduced racism in our outcomes, in our hiring, in our policies. Mm -hmm. So it's the it's the more subtle, it's the smile on the face. Um, It's the it's the gaslighting, it's the uh, denying. You make you, you you invoke guilt. In the book, you make a distinction between shame and guilt. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, in just a condensed version, um, guilt is generally what you feel about something you've done and feel responsible for. And shame is generally something you feel that you inherently are. So guilt is I did bad and shame is I am bad. Um, and I, uh, my area of scholarship is discourse analysis. And so, you know, language is political. Language is not objective. It's not neutral. And language shapes perception. And so I'm very attentive to how we frame conversations and how we position ourselves in conversations. And I notice 
that white progressives, those who would voluntarily attend a, a talk or watch a video like this, um, will pretty freely talk about um, feeling shame and I don't know what to do. I feel so much shame, but not guilt. And that's interesting to me, right? That's worthy of note. Ha ha, this is a pattern. <laughs> and as a sociologist, um, I think patterns are um, rich sources of insight. Um, so, so how does it function? If I feel guilty, um, I'm responsible for something and, and reparative action would be to somehow address what I have done. If I feel shame, I just am bad and there's nothing I can do. I'm absolved from responsibility and shame tends to elicit sympathy, support. If I say I feel so shame, so ashamed, I'm such a bad person. Most people around me are going to reassure me. No, no, no. You know, you, nobody should feel shame. We're all inherently good. This is a pretty popular progressive mantra. And so it, it's, it functions in the environment in, in ways that actually, I think, garner more social capital. Yeah, in some ways, I, I think you used a formulation like the fact that I feel badly <laughs> actually establishes that I'm actually a decent person, that I'm a yes. good person, right? Yes. But, but, you know, what's interesting is that, within, in, as you know, in, in certain kind of political theorist circles, it's the absence of shame mm. in our politics that represents a certain kind of problem, right? So Chris LeBron writes about the fact that, you know, Trump, you know, people thought that shame could actually move Trump around, right? And there's mm -hmm. a sense that there's no uh, feeling of shame, that on, on the right, it's the absence of shame that allows them to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and it seems to me, uh, after reading Nice Racism, it's the prevalence of shame on the left. I know this yeah. is too binary, but it's the prevalence right. of left, uh, the pre prevalence of shame on the left that, that actually enables, uh, uh, you know, in certain interesting sorts of ways. So I found this, this talk about the feeling of guilt as really, really a kind of critical intervention um, because there seems to be always, at least in, in, in my work and in my conversations, I'm not uh, in the zone that you're in uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but there's this sense in which we cannot sit in our discomfort yeah. because, because we find ourselves, find ourselves not only feeling guilty, but feeling shame yeah. uh, and feeling this sense that, you know, we're not, we're not in fact decent. And then that gums up the works, as yeah. it were. We can't get to where we want to get to. Yeah, well, shame is a very unpleasant feeling. Uh, yeah. So with guilt, shame is probably worse. Um, but can we, on you know, buck up? Can we bear it? Can we uh, build our capacity to feel it and move through it? And that's the key. You know, there's a question that has never failed me in my efforts to unpack. How do we keep getting the outcomes we get? Virtually every white person you talk to, even those who are caught on camera engaging in racism, will claim that they're not racist. Right. So, so then how do we keep getting racist? Racism, as what uh, Eduardo Bonillo Silva calls racism without racists. Racism, right. <laughs> um, so the question in, in, that has really served me in trying to figure that out is not is this right or wrong? Is it right or wrong that you feel shame? <laughs> no. Um, that we, we could split hairs over forever. It's how does it function? And how does it function in this context? 
And if, if it functions to motivate you to build your capacity, to move through it, to change the way you understand what's being said, well, then it's functioning in, in a constructive way. But if it's functioning to excuse your inaction, to be the reason you don't engage, to cause everyone around you to walk on eggshells and be so careful and don't say this and don't say that, well, then it's functioning per, to protect the uh, racist status quo. So, so chapter five stood out to me. Mm. It's the longest chapter in the book. And it is a detailed accounting of what you call the moves of white progressives. Uh, and I found it fascinating, you know, beyond, from credentialing to outwoking. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about outwoking in the context of some of the debates we saw uh, in the Bernie Sanders campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh, between Bernie Sanders, the campaign, and Black Lives Matter, or some of the conversations we overheard uh, with Occupy Wall Street, right? At the very moment Occupy is, is, is taking off, Black Lives Matter is taking off, and, and we were wondering, some of us, why weren't these things coming together? You know, it's like abolitionism and free soil. You know, why are they going in separate directions in interesting sorts of ways? Talk a little bit about the moves of white progressivism and why you thought it was so important to lay out. Because I, I didn't have language to say, oh, that's mm. what that was. Or mm. fascinating. Yes, that, that seems familiar to me. Talk a little bit about that chapter and lay, lay out why it's, why it's in, so way, in some ways, Robin, the heart of the book in some ways. Yeah, and I appreciate you, if, if I understood you correctly, acknowledging that it resonated. You've experienced these moves. You've been on the receiving end of these moves. Um, I am an educator, and uh, I think one of the things that I'm effective at is breaking it down and, and showing what it looks like. Um, you know, here's, here's how I can help you understand what you're doing and how it's functioning. Um, and so if the book is about the ways in which we perpetrate racial harm, um, then I'm, I need to make that very, very clear. And I've been observing it, <laughs> uh, receiving it, participating in it. I'm not outside anything that I write about uh, for 20, 20 plus years. And so um, I just wanted the opportunity to say, all right, <laughs> let's take it apart. What do we do? So credentialing is a really big one um, because it's so um, predictable that the moment uh, a white progressive um, encounters a black person or is, you know, engaging across race, they're going to need to feel a need to establish that they're not racist. Uh, and unfortunately, most of the ways we seek to do that are not remotely convincing. Um, <laughs> and, and I, 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 I've been in enough conversation with uh, black colleagues and friends who are like, you know, our eyes are rolling on the inside. And so another piece would be, you're making a fool of yourself. We're making a fool of ourselves. Do you, would you want to know? <laughs> I'd want to know if I came out of the bathroom and my skirt was tucked up into my pantyhose <laughs> and my bottom was showing uh, and you came up to me and say, heads up, you're, you know, is visible. Uh, I would be like, oh my God, thank you so much and pull my skirt down. Uh, I, I wouldn't say, how dare you? No, it isn't. And everybody better proceed as if they don't see anything, Right. And of course, that's white fragility. But I see two overall categories of credentialing, uh, colorblind. White, uh, white progressives are less likely to go into colorblind. We're going to go into proximity. 
And I, I have you noticed how often white people will use proximity to black people as their evidence that they are free of racism? Um, you know, I, I had a black roommate in college. Uh, I went to this school. I, I work on a diverse team. I, I've traveled, uh, you know, the world. Uh, uh, I live in a big, big city. Therefore, I have proximity. And what I try to help people do with that is say, okay, so you, if your evidence uh, that you're not racist is that you can tolerate proximity, <laughs> uh, you can walk down the street in a large major city and pass uh, black people and not not lose it, lose it um, then in order for that to be good evidence, it has to um, not be possible by somebody who's racist, right? Otherwise, that's not good race. That's not good evidence. Mm -hmm. um, so apparently, racists can't have proximity to black people. And I think right here, you see, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. Um, yeah, I mean, we can go all the way. We can go back to days of enslavement and Jim Crow, and we're quite clear that white racists had proximity, pretty intimate proximity at times to black people. Mm -hmm. um, and so I want them to see what they're doing when they do that, that they're, they're not convincing anybody. Um, and, and, and to reveal the underlying framework that they're operating from. Mm -hmm. And we, we just cannot get where we need to go from that framework that says, Racism consists of individual acts of intentional meanness. That's most white people's definition. This is why most white people will say they're not racist and why, why to uh, support their case, their friends will say how nice they are. Uh, exactly. He's a nice guy. He can't be racist. Those things are mutually exclusive. Right? I had this experience recently on television with my good friend, Senator Claire McCaskill. Mm. There was a moment when Senator Blunt from Missouri uh, described the For the People Act uh, and Senator Manchin's mm -hmm. uh, uh, amendments or his, his version, his response to it. And when Stacey Abrams endorsed uh, Manchin's uh, uh, compromise, Blunt described it as the Stacey Abrams bill. Mm. And someone said, well, obviously what he's trying to do is put a black face on this. Da, da, da. Uh, yep. and, and, and the response from my good friend was, um, he wouldn't, he's not a racist. He's a nice guy. Right. So it was exactly this language. Yep. Talk a little bit about outwoking because a lot of folks are experiencing this today as well. Talk a little bit about outwoking. Yeah. Um, Oh, I had a thought there about that, um, that example. Oh, but you can give no, it. it flew out. That's why I take notes. Um, yes. Okay. So outwoking is um, a move that white people often make to show I'm more down than you are. I, I know more about this than you do. And, and I've got a lot of it. I read your book. And so now I'm actually more down than you. And now I'm going to call you out, uh, you know, um, that I've been studying this for three months and I'm going to tell Robin D'Angelo, uh, you know, how wrong she is. Oh, I just got the thought back. Um, sometimes I'll go to YouTube and I'll see something. Five reasons why Robin D'Angelo is wrong. Um, and uh, the top one will be, she says all white people are racist. Can you believe that? And what I want to ask pretty much every white person to do is take a moment and define for yourself what is the criteria by which you would grant that somebody's racist? 
What is the criteria? Um, I don't think many white people have thought deeply about that, right? If you're uh, astounded that I would say all white people are racist, then tell me, tell me what you think it takes. And it's probably going to come down to some version of individual conscious meanness across race. And that, that framework, that paradigm just couldn't be more effective at protecting racism <laughs> uh, because it, one, it exempts virtually all white people, guarantees defensiveness, right? Guarantees that then nice people couldn't possibly participate. And then we end up with racism without racists. Um, yeah. yeah. And so let me just be clear since I said it, when I, when I say all white people are racist, what I mean is that we live in a society in which it is infused. Racist ideology is circulating all the time. The vast majority of white people live segregated lives and not only feel no loss about that, which for me is the deepest message of all, that I could go cradle to grave as most white people will with no authentic sustained relationship with black people. And not only not feel anything of value has been missing, but define my life as gaining value virtue the absence of blacks. This is really a key point here. So yes, I'm right? Sorry. Yeah. Like, what's a good school? What's a good neighborhood? What's happening when a neighborhood's going up, <laughs> coming up? What's happening when it's coming down? What are we talking about when a violent crime happens and somebody has to say on camera, you wouldn't believe that would ever happen here? Mm -hmm. that, you already know what kind of neighborhood we're talking about. And it begs the question, well, where should that happen? This is a key point. In my own work, um, I talk about what I call the value gap. This belief that some people, because of the color of their skin, ought to be valued more than others. And that valuation then evidences itself in the distribution of advantage and disadvantage, right? Where some people are treated with a generalized sense of disregard that accumulates over time, right? And others benefit. And this is not the result of loud racism, but actually the results of the result, or it is sustained over time to how we're habituated. Yes. Right? That all of us are habituated to kind of live the value gap. These racial habits are at yeah. the heart of our way of living. And so when I read this in, in, in Nice Racism, um, I never really thought about it in, in this way, that you, we know that what our social groups are, are homogeneous, right, for the most part. That, you know, when people talk about, uh, you know, um, network racism, Right. They're talking about the fact that our, you know, our networks are so homogeneous that opportunities are not passed along. Right. In certain networks, because they're not strong. Other networks, because they're robust. You know, I'm not playing golf when I'm 14, you know, 15, 16 with, yep. with my my friend's dad and the like. So there is this sense in which this segregated world, white world. Right. Which accords all of these benefits and advantage. Right. Almost as you put it earlier, this is the water you swim in. You can't come out of that on, you know, with no, without it a drop on you. And so it reminds me of that moment in Wendell Berry's The Hidden Wound, right? Mm -hmm. 
where he says, he, you know, racism comes to him as natural as language. Yeah, yeah. You know, as this Kentucky-born guy, you know, white guy. So I know yeah. I'm rambling, but what do you make oh, of no, that? Oh, no, no. Um, it, it's such an important point because it's such a sticking point. And then this gets us up against the very precious ideology of individualism. Yeah, right? exactly. Right. Which, which causes lots of white people to melt down into white fragility. You don't know me. How can you say anything about me? And it's true. I don't know all all of you <laughs> i don't know uh most of the white people i'm talking about that's on each individual white person to look at all right how have i been shaped by this you know what was my class position what's my gender what have been my life experiences within a society uh that no i'm just going to go here white supremacy the idea that white is the stand-in for human the ideal human and the further you are away from that standard, the less mm -hmm. human, as, as Resma Menikam argues, it's really an uh, argument about species, that the white body is the standard by which all bodies, humanity shall be measured. I'm quoting Resma Menikam now. Um, and so the further you are away from that whiteness, then the less human you are. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the society we live in. And, and we're all shaped by it. So that's mm -hmm. why I say we change the question from if to how. how. Yeah. Um, and it's it's similar with gender. I don't think anybody would argue that the moment a baby is born and the declaration is made boy or girl, mm -hmm. a whole set of socialization kicks in and you cannot avoid it. The, the blanket they wrap you in is going to be shaped by whatever gender they see you as. And you can resist it, but you're going to have to resist it. And you're going to have to resist it every step of the way from everyone you meet. They're going to be responding to you consciously or not as a male or a female. You know, these categories are being challenged, but none of us could be exempt from it, from gender conditioning. And yet we think we can be exempt from racial conditioning. So if that framework is helpful i would offer it to white people to to think to use okay um, yeah so i'm sorry go ahead good ahead. oh i had a thought because i i can imagine the what i call the yeah buts right yeah. so mm -hmm. the white folks are listening going well yeah but you know eddie just said he lives segregated life overall too or that his most of his friendship circle yeah the difference is um black people who may also live separate from white people. One, that is the result of decades and decades and decades of policies and practices that were forced on black people. Uh, this idea that people prefer to live with their own. I don't think some people prefer to live with their own with all the resources and some prefer with none of the resources, right? That, that's been imposed. And so now it seems natural, uh, but it is the result of those policies. Um, and you're not sitting at the table as a homogeneous group of people making decisions that affect my life. But my group is sitting at that table making decisions that affect your life. Can you see that picture in your mind of the governor of Georgia surrounded by other white oh, men signing the voting uh, restriction with the picture of the plantation mm -hmm. <laughs> behind him? So, yes, Biden's administration will be the most diverse administration we've ever had, but not one person listening right now was raised in a society in which Biden's administration is the norm. And all our conditioning doesn't unravel the moment there's some diversity in front of us. Uh, the people who are enacting 
these policies, banning whether you could literally, you and I could be having this conversation on a college campus. Mm-hmm. Who has the power to ban these conversations? Not your group, <laughs> my group. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I it, it, just listening to you, it, it reminded me of a moment in, in, in the book that I that I found really, really, really interesting. And it's these these deeply personal moments, right? So, my my social groupings are pre- are predominantly black. They're mm-hmm. people of color. Um, because it's exhausting at times, mm-hmm. right? And then you have to make the decision. You wrote about this in the book. The people who are in your close circles, who happen to be white, who are white, I make a distinction. Yeah. Let me just say, there's a distinction between being white and happening to be white. Let's, let's, put, let's make that distinction. Um, you have to make a decision in those, social, in those moments. Do I risk our friendship? to tell him or her what she just did or what yeah. he just did. Do, do I just let that slide or do we just move on? Do I, answer, am I, do I have to interpret the drums today, right? That is always being asked to give an account for why A, B, and C, right? So there, there's a sense in which there's not only the kind of broad macro questions or issues that mm-hmm. you described, mm-hmm. but there are also the internal demands that um, uh, are placed on relationships, interracial relationships. They're, they're, and I, I got this in a, sen- a sense in, in your own book. When you found yourself doing certain things, you would call your black friends to say, who are who do the similar, who do similar work, and they would have to walk you through it, mm-hmm. right? And 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 what kind of labor that is? That's addition, an additional kind of labor that you don't have with other kinds of friends, right? Yeah. Um, that, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. There, there are two concepts that are useful for me here. And w- one is um, allostatic load. And that refers to chronic stressors. So lots of people carry uh, allostatic load. But racial weathering is the result of allostatic load that, that is due to the stress of living in a society in which systemic racism is the foundation. And, you know, all that agony, right? Here I am. I just said that thing. You know, it's coming from an, a racist assumption. It's coming from implicit bias, but I'm oblivious to it. And I say it and I carry on. I had a great time at the party and you are spending that, you know, hours agonizing. Is it worth it to talk to her? Uh, will I risk losing the relationship? How often has this gone well for me? You know what? It's not worth it. <laughs> um, uh, unfortunately, as I argued in White Fragility, um, often the punishment gets worse, not better. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's why I see White Fragility as a kind of everyday white racial bullying, a, a form of everyday white racial control. Is that right? So we have this interaction and then you, you really have to work to think about whether it's worth it to talk to me. And Maybe you just decide, no, it's not. I got to get through the day. I got to take care of my family at home. Um, And so, you know, I didn't get called in. I wasn't accountable. The racism got to fly. You got to bear the brunt of it. And, you know, we keep on keeping on with me being comfortable and you being uncomfortable. I want to share a a really powerful moment that drives this home. I was in front of a group. This is back in the day when you could be in front of groups. And I posed, I'd gone over 
white fragility and all of these dynamics. And I posed a question to the people of color in the room. I said, how often have you tried to give a white person feedback on our inevitable and often unaware racist habits and assumptions and have that go well for you? You know, they laugh, they roll their eyes. Uh, the number one response uh, is never. Uh, the number two response is rarely. And I followed up by saying, asking, well, what if you could just give us that feedback and, and had us receive it with grace, reflect and seek to change our behavior? What would that be like? And I'll never forget this black man raised his hand and he said, it would be revolutionary. I mean, revolutionary is a really strong word, right? I mean, that's how difficult white people are, that that is a freaking, if I may, revolution. Give us the feedback and have us receive it with grace, reflect and seek to change. You know, that's how difficult we are. On the other hand, that doesn't seem like a very tall order. It, it really doesn't, but it is a tall order from the current paradigm that says only bad people could be racist. That guarantees that I'm going to have to defend myself. And then you're going to be in the position of deciding whether it's worth it. So this is, this is a really a wonderful way of kind of panning out a bit, right? Because the work speaks to these cross-racial, inter, you know, interracial relationships, the kind of personal um, interactions and how they run aground, the moment in which our allies are approaching this as a philanthropic issue. They're not seeing themselves. They, they understand themselves as decent. I mean, we can go through right. all the language, right? But we're, we're in a moment where we're seeing this work at the macro mm -hmm. in very, very clear ways. Mm -hmm. So Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott declares America is not a racist country. Vice President Kamala Harris echoes, we're not a racist country but we have to deal with our racist past. Okay, another kind of moment. Critical race theory as the catch-all phrase for uh, the kind of work that you do, the kind of work that Ibram does, Ibram yep. Kendi does, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this effort to kind of re-narrate 1619 project, right? All of these are attempts to kind of tell a different story about our beginnings, about who we are, confronting uh, our wrongdoings and the like. And we see the depth of the vitriol. We see the intensity of the response. Reading nice racism, we kind of, you have it at the level of interpersonal relationship, but we see it broadly uh, at, uh, across the country at large. So bring the two together for me, yeah. D'Angelo. Talk yeah. about nice racism and talk about where we are as a country in this moment, which is what's supposed to be, or is supposed to be a moment of profound possibility and transfer. transfer. I think precisely because it is a moment of profound uh, possibility, we're seeing um, incredibly amplified uh, efforts to stop it from being that moment. So Carol Anderson so beautifully argues in white rage, every inch of black progress has been met by white rage. Uh, I believe that the current moment is, is a backlash to uh, Obama presidency. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that this blocking of critical race theory is a reaction to what happened this summer. Um, and that, that more and more white people are being um, 
uh, awoken and galvanized to to get involved. You know, the forces um, that uh, are invested in racial justice are, are deep, but the forces that are invested in maintaining the racist status quo are also very, very deep and for the most part have the reins of power. So I see both those kind of sides, if you will, absolutely amplified. And I don't believe that those who wanna protect uh, the racist status quo can come out and say that, they can't. So they have to find a boogeyman, which they have always been effective at doing, right? Um, the, the Southern strategy where you, you manipulate the white populace's an, racial animus, you cause them to be afraid, you, you um, reinforce this idea of scarcity, that any gain for you is a loss for me. Heather McGee talks about that in The Sum of Us, uh, that we, uh, Jonathan Metzl talks about it in um, Dying, Dying, white. Dying mm -hmm. of Whiteness, mm -hmm. right? So critical race theory, and I just heard Tim Weiss uh, call it uh, uh, conservative race theory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it's a stand-in for anyone who acknowledges that systemic racism is real. But it's, it's, it's the perfect stand-in, in a way, uh, to cover that. So you have the word critical. And outside of academia, a lot of people hear that as meaning criticism. And that sounds bad, right? Within academia, critical thinking means thinking deeply with nuance, and with education. Um, and then you have the word theory. Oh, that sounds like some radical crackpot thing. You know, if it's just a theory, then it's not, you know, true or established. And it's such a perfect little meme to dismiss the conversation. And it's being very effective. There's a part of me that doesn't even want to talk about it because I don't want to reinforce right. the legitimacy, you know, of, um, you know, is CRT right or wrong? So let me be clear, true critical race theory, of course, comes out of legal scholarship, like um, Kimberly Crenshaw's work and uh, Daryl, yeah, Derek Bell. So I am not a critical race theorist, um, but of course it's been applied. The premise is that racism is structured into the society and, and that absolutely. <laughs> right, so, you know, like you switched the, the, the question to how. Yeah. With regards to the critical race theory debate, I want to ask the question, why? Why critical race theory? Why now? Why add? So, so it seems yeah. to me that these moments, you know, to assert that America is not racist, Tim Scott, to, to attack 1619, to, to attack CRT, right? All of this is aimed at, as we as we said at the at the beginning of this particular conversation, um, is aimed at arresting change, mm -hmm. right? To limit the scope of remedy. Mm -hmm. We're not bad, so we can't engage in this wholesale, you know, transformation of who we are. We're not that. We're this. So instead of at, at, instead of debating CRT on its merits, because these folks don't even know what it is most no. of the time. Right. We need to ask ourselves, why is this being asked? But let me I want to get to this really quick, because okay. it seems to me that this is where nice racism is so important. Um, at the level of politics. Because you have the two sides as you've described them. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to make, you know, all 
uh, of those persons on the right, uh, you know, daily callers, subscri subscribers, or or white nationalists, or the like. There, mm -hmm. there's differentiation there. Yes, uh, but they seem to be. There seems to be some level of solidarity with regards to the maintaining the idea that America must remain a white nation in the vein of old Europe. On the other side, though, you have nice racists. Mm -hmm. Those who who are fighting for a more just America, who claim. Uh, this is this is what makes your book so interesting to me uh, at a certain level uh, is that among those who are supposedly fighting against uh, those folks, you have the Joe Mansions and 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 the like. And you can use your text to see what he's doing <laughs> in real time at the level of politics. So talk a little bit about what does it mean for these people to be on the side of a more just world? Yeah, um, I hope white people keep fighting. Uh, I hope um, nice white people are out there fighting. Um, unfortunately, I I haven't seen that the energy that we saw last summer is being sustained. Um, you know, it, it, running down to a protest on some level is exciting and exhilarating, but the daily work of putting racism on the table, looking at your policies and practices in the workplace, challenging one another. That's the really hard stuff. Mm -hmm. And in case I don't say it earlier uh, or later, um, it takes courage. It takes commitment, but it also takes courage. Um, and niceness is not courageous. So my point around that is that that so many white people see the presence of niceness as an indicator of the absence of racism. And a culture of niceness is actually one that prevents us having difficult conversations about racism. It's generally a culture that's nice for me, but not necessarily nice for you. There's this idea that uh, the way that I experience the world must, must be the way that you experience the world. So I find our, you know, our campus to be a very welcoming place. So wouldn't you feel it to be a welcoming place? Or this idea that if a policy is applied to everybody, then it's fair, even if the outcomes are not going to be the same. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so it takes a lot of commitment and courage and that I want to see sustained. And, and this kind of ties back to the outwoking. The moment I think that I've arrived, I'm going to be complacent. I'm also going to be defensive about any feedback to the contrary. It, any idea, this is why one of the chapter, it, chapters is called, there is no choir. It, the moment I think I'm the choir, I'm, I'm going to be part of the problem. I, I, there is a level of humility that white people need to have, a level of understanding that this construct is hundreds of years old at this point. It's nuanced, it's complicated, it's charged, it's not simple. Uh, it's not going to change just because we are friends. Um, and, and so uh, my learning will never be finished. Mm. But what about my trauma, Robin? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious because you, you, you teach in college classrooms, I assume, and you probably, when you start to talk about race, you may see some of these moves. Um, so there's a chapter called um, What About My Trauma? Um, and that's um, a pattern that I often see 
amongst uh, progressive white people that um, as soon as we start having hot, hard conversations where they become implicated, right? We're not going to talk about it out here. We're not going to, you know, talk about everybody else's <laughs> uh, challenges. We're going to, whatever we talk about, we're going to ask you to connect it to yourself. So what does that look like in your life, right? Um, the number one question I get when I give a talk is, you know, how do I tell my friend about racism? And I reply like this, well, how would I tell you about your racism? Mm -hmm. Right, because the question always implies that it's not me. I'm good to go. I have to go forth and tell other people. So as soon as it starts to implicate us, uh, many white progressives will move into their own pain and their own hurt. Right. Maybe you could imagine it starts getting hard. I start feeling implicated and I'm going to start talking about growing up poor and how those people said that thing about me when I was young and how that hurt me. And now I'm going to be a victim. Right. right? Or I'm going to say this conversation is bringing up my old traumas mm -hmm. and I can't continue to in this conversation. And, and I, I wanted to call, call that in <laughs> and again, ask people to think deeply. So how is it functioning in the conversation? What happens to the conversation when you move to that place? And I also want to push, push people have trauma. I'm yeah. not denying that you have trauma, but I am going to hold firm that talking about racism isn't in it in and of itself traumatic. So here we are. For white people. Had, yes, yes. So uh, here we are. We've had this this wonderful conversation. Uh, people have come to you. They've read White Fragility. They've read. They're going to read Nice Racism. Hopefully, they're going to read some of those articles too. Mm -hmm. uh, um, the scholarship that that informs it all. Thank you. What is the source of hope? Mm for the work that you do and what you've seen over the years of doing this work? Where's your source of hope? This is a way, not that we have to end with hope because yeah. that's that typical American narrative, yep. but talk a little bit about what you see on the immediate horizon as you continue to do this work. Well, you know, I'm an educator, so I'm going to say a little bit about the politics of hope before I say what gives me hope. Um, I think hope is political. Um, because it drives behaviors and responses, just like I think emotions are political, uh, because they are informed by the framework through which we're making meaning, which is why if you told me 20 years ago what you're doing is racist, I, I would have interpreted that through a particular framework, and it would have had a set of emotions, and they would have uh, triggered some responses, which would have been, at that time, white fragility. And today I have a different framework. And so I have very different feelings if you were to say that to me. Mm -hmm. And hope functions similarly. Now, it, it doesn't function the same for Black people as it does for white people. I, I can't speak to your relationship to that concept. But what I can tell you is, <laughs> after 25 years of doing this work and seeing where we are right now, do I struggle with hopelessness? Yes, <laughs> I do. And I cannot go there. I can't, as a white person, I can't go there. I cannot succumb to it uh, because the moment I do, you know, great, give up, give up. And who does that serve? What does that serve? Um, because it's a system that benefits me. If I give up hope within it, if I give up hope to fight it, I collude with it and continue to benefit from it. On the other hand, um, too much hope can make me Pollyanna, right? Um, and can cause me to be complacent 
And, you know, there were lots of white folks who felt uh, completely hopeful following the civil rights movement of the 60s and look where we are. So it is something I, I navigate. Um, uh, I have to push through it. But what gives me hope um, is there's a couple maybe concrete things that on the, um, the stage, the world stage of the democratic debates, uh, reparations for black people was discussed with absolute legitimacy. I didn't think that would happen in my lifetime. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' article in the Atlantic on, on reparations it is brilliant and powerful and, and started to make headway in the culture. There was a time when you couldn't critique capitalism. Right. <laughs> uh, and there's a, a time when you couldn't say white supremacy. And now from the president's office, I'm talking about Biden, um, he's saying uh, systemic racism and white supremacy are among the most urgent issues of our time. That's incredible. And it gives me hope. Uh, and it's tempered by the fact that we'll see what happens when he isn't president anymore, whether that be four years from now or 12 years from now. Well, it has been an absolute delight to have an opportunity to talk with you. And I'm reminded of a wonderful phrase from Jimmy Baldwin. He says, hope is invented every day. Mm, and if, it's ha if you have to invent it every day, that means you're battling despair every day. So we're going to keep fighting no matter what. Well, so it's, it's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. Be sure to check out our Book Notes Plus podcast. This week, historian and attorney David Stewart talks about the political career of George Washington and his evolution from an egotistical military hero to founding father of the United States. Find it and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>